How do we fight 100 years of cannabis used as a tool for oppression? Hi, my name is Lily Gu, and I'm a producer for Equity Rising, the podcast that examines how we're shaping history and tells the story of the current racial justice movement. In this episode, our host Trey connects with Ernest Tony, the founder of BIPOC Can, a Denver business that subverts the history of cannabis prohibition by connecting BIPOC folks to the industry. Trey and Ernest dive into the community impact of the war on drugs, the disparities that black and brown business owners face in today's legal industry, and the future of cannabis. Today on Equity Rising, we have Ernest Tony of By Paul Can. You are doing some amazing work. I want to introduce you to our audience, and I want you to be able to tell us where you're doing this work, what it is. We're going to get all into this. Ernest Tony, so happy to have you with us. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we love starting this off with our segment we call First Things First, where we really just have to ask you, how are you taking care of yourself? (laughs) Oh, uh, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. This has been a hard year for everybody. But for me, you know, ever since I decided to kick off this venture, you know, that feeling of liberation has actually been quite nice. I've been able to have a little bit more freedom and control over, you know, my day to day, how I spend my time. And most recently, you know, I've just been trying to do my part by like eating right, you know, getting the gym and through all the conversations that I'm having with folks in this industry, that's also keeping me motivated and inspired. So I'm good. That's good. That's good. That's that's what it's all about. So let's give this great background for the audience. Let's tell the folks who you are, what it is you do, what movement you're involved in right now. Yeah, certainly. So I'm the founder of a company called BIPOC Can, B-I-P-O-C-A-N-N. And BIPOC Can represents connecting BIPOC professionals and business owners to the cannabis industry. So I got into this work. I'll start by saying that about two years ago, I started working within the legal cannabis industry at Marijuana Business Daily, which is the industry's leading business news resource and also the industry's largest business-to-business conference and expo producer. So during my tenure there, I was in charge of global marketing and partnerships and was primarily like focusing on increasing their readership, event registration, and also playing a pretty important role in the marketing efforts to get our first business conferences that talk about the educational opportunities within the cannabis space, you know, kicked off in Canada, Europe, and Latin America. So after two years there, I transitioned into, you know, doing my own thing because I saw, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, there's just like a lack of representation, a lack of Black-owned, BIPOC-owned representation within the cannabis industry. And you know, I just sort of felt like the timing was right for me to use like my connections, insights and real motivation to try to make an impact by helping others be a part of this industry. So BIPOC is trying to do that work, trying to bring new BIPOC professionals and business owners to the cannabis space and also working with existing cannabis businesses and brands by connecting them to folks of color who are trying to take advantage of the economic opportunities within cannabis. Wow. Well, it's so interesting to me because, you know, this is, again, I've said this before on this podcast, but it's so true when we think about the term equity, you know, every sector probably of this country can use a bit more equity work, right? When so a cannabis industry is not, you know, remiss from that. And I think that what you're just describing showcases something that we've been talking a lot about up here in Seattle. And I want to ask you, you know, in terms of some of the inspiration you took to really inspire you 
to push into this. Uh, what were some of the big disparities you were really seeing that made you understand that there was a real need for BIPOC in? Well, you know, when I started working at MJ Biz Daily, like I, I've always been somebody that's, you know, about information and learning, you know, so I wanted to figure out, hey, how does everything work? And I had that opportunity, especially with doing so much work with these new emerging markets, you know, in abroad, by sort of seeing how industry really comes together, you know, and a lot of these new markets, you'll have the legislators and the regulators, the science, the research, the business community, you know, you have everybody at the table having these conversations, trying to figure out how they can not only help, you know, improve the lives of their patients and their health, but also how to create, you know, economic opportunities for their state or localities. So, you know, I just by having, you know, the access to be at the center of a lot of those conversations, you know, you start to take a look around and you realize that representation is is lacking, you know, especially for, you know, folks of color. So I think once, you know, this year kicked off and we started seeing so much happening in the U.S., you know, amidst social unrest, you know, I think a lot of protesting, uh, the cannabis industry responded by having a lot of, you know, organizations and business leaders saying that, yes, you know, we care about black lives. Yes, like this is important. Yes, we need to diversify what we're doing. And, you know, for me, it's great to see that, but then time passes and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what are you going to do to actually like fix this? And I think for me, like once the awareness started to become more mainstream and you started seeing more people talk about how this is important, I just wanted to figure out, hey, like, well, this follow through, okay, how are we going to tackle this? And that's when I started to sort of see like some real educational gaps within the industry, some cultural gaps within the industry. And... You know, I sort of felt like, hey, I could have made change by staying where I was and try to, you know, fight that fight internally or to go elsewhere. But, you know, I'm somebody that has strong networks and connections and insight. And I really have this belief that I want to help, you know, make things right. And I ultimately decided that one way to walk the walk was to literally be that inspiration, like do what we need. Like we don't have enough black business owners in cannabis, so I'm going to become one. (laughs) Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. That's how you do it. That's how you do the work, right? (laughs) By becoming a part of the industry. I think that's so, so important. And up here for us, I think one of the catalysts around identifying some of the disparities, particularly in the cannabis industry with regard to communities, how Our communities have been policed with regard to marijuana charges in the past. And up here in Seattle, in the Central District, we have a real iconic corner that, you know, really did have so many people, you know, were selling drugs on that corner. They got incarcerated. You know, some of them probably still locked up to this day. And yet we have this thriving cannabis shop that's now there, you know, reaping all of the benefits of so much blood that felt like was sown in the streets beforehand, like historically speaking. And I want to ask you about the climate of that. Like, as we talk about how it is actually shaped in our communities, how is Denver doing that down there where you are? Do you guys have any of those kind of similarities? Yeah, you know, I think, of course, I think if you take a look at a lot of black and brown communities and you look at the history of uh, cannabis prohibition, you know, 100 years of prohibition, you sort of see over a period of time the effects of cannabis being used as a tool for oppression. You know, it's systemic. You know, you sort of see how it gets accelerated when the war on drugs comes about and the communities that are getting targeted are those black and brown communities. So, you know, you have ripple effects that sort of continue. You know, you have uh, policing measures and 
and best practices that end up being developed based on, you know, like historical approaches to how you handle enforcement and policing of cannabis use. So I think you're going to see some of those same type of disparities that you described as happening up in King County in most metropolitan areas within the U.S., especially those ones where there are, you know, legal cannabis markets in place. So I moved out here in 2011. So I was here a full year before Colorado Amendment 64 hit the ballot. And you know, I was lucky to be here during a time when, you know, sort of experiencing the run-up and then here in uh, January of 2014 when we became the first adult use market to have cannabis. So, you know, for me, I was more interested in understanding, hey, what are the economic opportunities for this? And, you know, as time passes and I think you start seeing more, you know, young black men, uh, brothers and sisters getting targeted, arrested, and sometimes straight up killed, and, you know, sort of having cannabis, marijuana, being used as that reason to stop them in the first place, you know, you start to think differently about, okay, well, what's really, you know, happening here? So with me being at the center of, you know, this industry, like, that was also something that I was aware of, too, just sort of seeing how some of these same black and brown communities that have you know, families, communities that have been negatively affected by the war on drugs are the same ones that are being excluded from the profit centers of the, you know, the corporate world and within the space. So you're asking about like what Denver's doing. Denver has taken a multi-pronged approach to ensuring that communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs can benefit from legalization. So I know that there's been some social equity programs, some work down here that They've used a lot of different tactics, such as uh, marijuana tax revenue to support low and moderate income neighborhoods, vacating low level marijuana convictions. Governor Polis just pardoned. I don't know the exact number, but, you know, that's like another step in the right direction to you know clear people of low level charges. There's other initiatives that the city is doing, cannabis equity projects that help with distribution for new licenses like hospitality and delivery. And then they're, you know, working with folks on the ground, policymakers. You know, I'm going to try to do my part to also be a part of those conversations to figure out how we can remove barriers to obtaining licenses and to bring people in. You know, I think that you're so right. And I'll say that it's great that Denver's taking a multi-pronged approach. I think what we're experiencing here in Seattle is that there isn't enough city pushing equity in the cannabis industry. There's not enough kind of movement necessarily coming from a legislative place, right? Where it's like, look, we can look at these things. We understand that, you know, historically there's been some disparities. Let us look at this industry as a ways to make amends for some of that. And it sounds like you guys have done that. It's really exciting because listening to you and also Raven, one of our first guests on Equity Rising here, who was talking about cannabis equity in Oakland. And so it was great to hear some of the programs that they had going on around equity in the cannabis industry, particularly like what you just said with specific neighborhoods that were historically, you know, targeted for marijuana charges and really ensuring that there's certain folks who grew up in those neighborhoods have access to these opportunities to own cannabis shops of their own. So I'm really inspired up here in Seattle because I think we have a lot to learn in terms of how to take a multi-pronged approach when it comes to utilizing a new industry to close some disparity gaps. And so it's just great to hear that. I'm really inspired by it. For you, it's clear, you created BIPOC CAN as a separate entity to kind of attack equity from your own perspective. And you said it earlier, you know, you could have done it from the inside, but you realize that you need to really take this approach. How is 
has it been for you, you know, with your strong network and with your sense of understanding in this industry? How has it been for you so far with BIPOC Hand? You know, so far, so good. I I think anytime you're trying to get like a new venture off the ground, there's like so much that you have to you know navigate just to get it to the point where you can sort of go to market and try to say, hey, here's what I stand for. Here's the branding. Here's the messaging. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, so I did the legwork. You know, I was definitely beneficial to, you know, make some connections and have, you know, that insider knowledge of sort of how the industry functions and how it works. So, you know, I had privilege. You know, I was at a position where I think I was able to sort of get a head start in the race, like, you know, so to speak. So I uh, did my soft launch September 4th. And, you know, now we're about, what, seven weeks in. I started doing, you know, real active marketing at the beginning of October. But, you know, even before I started doing the the brand specific marketing, I was already able to get some support, you know, in terms of getting some businesses on board as, you know, partners or getting them to become paid members. Also, you know, getting some folks who were just really excited about what I was doing and they're really receptive. I think you have a lot of folks who are in this industry that are trying to figure out, hey, how can you tackle this the right way? And I don't necessarily think any one person or any one business has the right way to do it, but I think you need to have a variety of tactics, you know, to solve like a very deep rooted problem that has, you know, afflicted communities for a hundred years. I will say this, you know, at this point it is I've had very positive reception and you know I know where I'm going. I've been able to build some partners. I've been fortunate to get, you know, some coverage by other like podcasts and media entities and you know been invited to sort of speak so that I can sort of be somebody that can share the message about like what my brand is trying to accomplish but also raise more attention to and visibility to the importance of, of equity within this space. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think it does really take a varied approach, right? We need all of these folks doing different work in different sectors to really bring about equity overall. And so I'm really happy to hear so much about your work. Honestly, Ernest, I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. I think I'm really inspired because sometimes when we don't see organizational solutions in front of us, we have to create them. And that's exactly what you did here with BIPOC CAN. And honestly, I think that there presents itself with another example of how people can kind of tackle a lot that we're seeing here in the movement. And so I have to move it into that direction. I got to go there, you know, right? Because this whole movement is happening and erupting all around us. Clearly, so much of our work is a part of that. You know, when you're talking about doing anything really around equity in a real serious way, I think that that's so much of what the movement is calling for. How do you feel that your work really is either representative of this movement, inspired by it, connected to it. Tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, but yeah, these systems like this social injustice, social inequities, you know, they've been pervasive in our country, you know, since its inception. And then, you know, if you look at the past hundred years and even like more recently, like post-civil rights act in the sixties, we've been making like incremental steps, you know, in the right direction to, you know, sort of rectify some of like the historical problems and like just <laughs> messes that were created that didn't have to. And, um, you know, so this movement touches every aspect of, of life, you know, for a lot of folks. And I think regardless of your industry, these are conversations that should be had, you know, okay, how can you be more inclusive? How can you create opportunities? How can you make sure that you're being more accessible? And, you know, it's not only like the right thing to do, but 
you know, from a business standpoint, I think it makes, you know, financial sense too. You know, like if you were trying to, regardless of the product that you're trying to sell, you know, if you are really interested in having like a diverse like consumer or customer base or supply chain, then, you know, it's important to have, you know, that same type of like cultural education and diversity within your, your business setting. Now, if you transition that directly into the cannabis space, you'll probably hear a lot of criticisms within cannabis about social equity programs and how none of them have really gotten it right. But I think it's important to also recognize that you have these states that have these programs in place. Some of them have been, you know, exploited and you see predatory practices. But I think like moving forward, you can look back at some of the programs and sort of realize, okay, well, where were the mistakes that were made? How can you make improvements so that we can get this right in the future? And this also speaks to why I was my approach of tackling this social equity from a stance that's not directly political based. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes policy takes time, you know, and it's important to still be vocal, to protest, to put pressure on lobbyists and uh, regulators and legislators to try to get them to make that change. But you also have to find other ways to you know, tackle that problem. So I think a lot of times if you were to talk specifically about what does social equity look like in cannabis, you might hear people say, well, it's all about dispensary ownership. How many licenses can you get? Well, while that's important and we want to have representation, I also think it's important to realize that this is an industry and you don't have to be a dispensary owner or operator to be in it or to support it. So by taking, you know, approach to bring people that have professional skills in other areas that can support any type of industry or folks who just want to get in, you know, like working with partners to create like that educational pipeline with HBCUs. So, you know, graduates can go from <laughs> go from you know, college to entry in this. There's so many different ways that you can approach it. And that's I know sort of deviated from what you asked me, but that's that's how I'm uh, that's how I'm trying to like tackle this problem. No, I think you answered it head on because I think that, again, you know, you saw and recognized a particular solution that you could bring to a problem and said, I'm going to go about it this way. And I think that that's what so much of this movement is really calling on so many of us Americans to do is to not only be thinking about, well, what can I do in this situation, but taking your stake back in this country. Omari Salisbury, my partner on Converge Media, says that all the time that, you know, hey, folks need to take their stake back in this country. And I think that that's really what we're seeing. And it is going to take a varied approach. It does mean that we have to think about it from so many different perspectives and also that it is really wrecked and really kind of the foundation for so much industry we have in this country that, yeah, again, it means we need to then go back to that industry, look at it all over again, dismantle, rebuild. How do we do this? And so I think that what you're doing definitely sounds like that for the cannabis industry. Now it's time for the chime in. In this segment, we bring in voices from our community to see what they have to say. My name is Elijah Lewis, and my best and worst experience with the cannabis industry. I would have to say my best experience with the cannabis industry is just seeing how CBD oil treatment has helped my uncle who is suffering with really bad scoliosis and back pain not being able to sleep and being in excruciating pain to the point where, you know, he starts screaming during out the night and whatnot to where now he's able to walk on his own. He's able to be able to sit down and has very little pain. And so that is one of the 
really big healing properties that I've seen that cannabis can can do in real life. One of my worst experiences with the cannabis industry is just seeing how it has affected a lot of my bros and a lot of people who are in our community who had sold it for money before it was legalized into now where it is legalized. And a lot of them have felonies or some of them are still in jail for you know, smaller cannabis crimes for either distribution of cannabis or possession of cannabis. And I see that now that it is legalized, 49 of the 50, you know, cannabis dispensaries are all white owned. Even if you do have, if you have any felony with cannabis or anything in the past, then you can't own a dispensary. So I see that that is directly, you know, affecting people who might have sold cannabis in the past from being able to get into this industry. And so that is one of the worst things that I've seen is just our white counterparts being able to profit off of the same things that they would, you know, criminalize us for. And now back to the show. Now you're talking about, you know, BIPOC can kind of being that place, that hub where folks can come in, kind of enter into the industry. Walk us through that. If I am a person in Denver, I want to get into the cannabis industry. I come to BIPOC can. How is it that you help me? So I think in that example, obviously, like education is important, you know, so I always try to take like a consultative approach with anyone who joins, whether it's like an individual professional, someone that wants to just learn more, which we call the can of curious (laughs) or uh, (laughs) or, you know, a business that's already established or wants to have more of a stake like within this uh, multi-billion dollar market. So you end up, you know, joining BIPOC and and BIPOC and I've created something that's called the BIPOC Cannabis Business Network. So I treat that sort of as like a membership organization, like a chamber of commerce. So when you join, I want to talk to you. You know, I want to figure out, okay, well, what are your interests? What are your goals? What are you hoping to accomplish? And, you know, if you're saying, well, I'm not sure, I just want to learn about this industry and I want to, you know, figure out how it works and what the opportunities are. Okay, cool. Well, I have folks that are directly in my network and people who I, you know, just through my past work, I can connect you to who provide education, whether that's through a virtual or a physical conference when, you know, in post post COVID world, um, or whether it's through, you know, some type of educational platform where you have training modules from experts within the industry. And because the industry is so varied, there's so many different ways that you could So somebody might join and they want to become a dispensary owner or they're really interested in cultivating or maybe there's somebody that has a background in law and they're trying to figure out, hey, what are the legal opportunities and how can I best fit in? So just by benefit of me being in this industry and knowing how it functions and having worked with so many niche based and, you know, specialized organizations, I can point you to where you want to go. That's awesome. I mean, it really is. And so is this something the way that you have it set up? Is this something someone comes in and they pay a fee for this or is it that they can sign up for specific services? How does it work on the financial side? Probably the easiest way is go to the website, BIPOCan.com, and there is a place where you'll see like in a drop down, this is the BIPOC Cannabis Business Network. So it talks about the different ways that you can join and it talks about the different, you know, tiers and options and benefits that comes with it. So the simplest way is for an individual. Right now, I have it set up where you know, it's very accessible. It's like $50 a year 
pretty soon when that promotion ends, it'll double and it'll be $100 a year, which is still like good value. But you can join. I get notified. And then I have this private social network, this online app that you'll get invited to. And then you can directly interact with other members uh, so you can chat freely and make the business connections there. Or there's set uh, topic areas. So like we might be talking about, hey, here's some upcoming events or here's Baba Canada News or some of our network members in the news or here are topics that talk about social equity best practices or here's topics about basically the, the legal makeup of this industry, like where you can do business and things like that. So it's pretty simple. Of course, you can join as an individual, but you might want to join as a business because if you are trying to get your brand in front of some of these individuals, then I have a place on the website where I'm essentially putting your logo, promoting you, communicating what it is that you're doing. So not only do the businesses get that ability to take advantage of like the promotional and the visibility efforts that I'm doing, but they also are sort of putting themselves out there. So, you know, if you are a company that wants to have like a diversified workforce, well, now we can see that you align with our beliefs and that you support BIPOC and, and now you have that opportunity to connect directly with people who could be an asset to your business. Well, it sounds like you've really created an amazing network, really. I mean, of like folks, a network of information, obviously ways to enter the industry, a lot of great work and a lot of hard work, honestly, Ernest, it sounds like, because you have to really have your hands in a lot of different pots to really be able to pull the resources together that are going to be beneficial to, you know, folks who are looking to make this their career, make this their business. And so, you know, what are some of the greatest challenges? We'll do both. We'll do, you know, your greatest challenges challenges and your greatest successes. Let's hear about both. Well, I think maybe before I talk about that, one of the things that I think is also important to know about this network is usually when someone joins and because we have that consultative approach, it becomes really easy to sort of figure out and sort of play matchmaker and figure out, okay, how can I best support you? So a good example is this, like if somebody wants to figure out how to become more connected and educated, like I'm working with this one organization, Black Canna Business Magazine, that's putting on the Black Canna Business Conference for the first time. So, you know, me aligning with partners like that is like another way where I can say, all right, not only am I helping you get educated within this space, but we're also uplifting other black owned businesses who are trying to, you know, do the exact same thing. And I have a similar arrangement with a company that's focusing on like the recruitment platform. So that's one way that we're able to offer like an abundance of services without it all relying on me. And that I think is also important because it speaks to that idea of building community, like recognizing that you have people with, you know, specialized talents and backgrounds and experiences. And if you can attack equity and injustice collaboratively by getting people, you know, uh, who specialists in their areas to get behind like a single mission. So that's a challenge <laughs> because, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do you get, you know, folks to buy into that vision? And then you're also trying to figure out, okay, well, how can you make sure that you're providing them with value? How can you make sure that you're you know, making a very clear message about what it is that you're trying to do? Because I don't want it to come across as, hey, look, I'm just a promoter. I need people to buy into the vision. So I think that's a challenge and I think it's an opportunity. But I also feel like, like that will continue to be a challenge because I think right now you might have some organizations that are within the space that are saying, OK, well, I need you to prove it. 
I already know an organization that like might support you know, professional development or entrepreneurship for minorities has been around longer. Why should I go, you know, with something that is brand new or in startup mode? So it's going to require a little bit of, you know, belief (laughs) and uh, some patience. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge, like getting the message out and getting enough backers, enough people to join so that, you know, you can thrive from an operational standpoint. But some of the successes I would say is that, you know, I've already been able to get like a groundswell of people that have been all about this idea and have already joined. And I've already made some of those introductions and connections and, you know, brought people who joined my network and then made introductions. And now they're best friends and they've created business partners with people they didn't know a month ago. So I'm already sort of seeing like this vision play out. Some other successes I would say is just the sheer like receptiveness and responsiveness to uh, the idea has been cool. I feel like I've been giving several opportunities to have a platform to share what it is that I'm trying to accomplish. So, you know, if that means that the more opportunities I have to raise visibility about, you know, inequity and different ways to attack it, and the more opportunities that I have to showcase, like, you know, what the, the company is doing, like, I, I think that's a success in itself, too. Absolutely. I agree with you. And you really got into something that I wanted to get into because you talked a lot about this kind of web, like this network, this coalition, really, like that you have to have of, you know, folks that you're providing value for, they're providing value, you know, building it off of these relationships that you had before in your career and really caring for your character, right? That maybe speaks to them a beginning, you know, in the beginning to say, you know what? Yeah, I don't mind doing business with this guy. I know him, you know, I trust them. You know, it's really built on that kind of relational value. And it really speaks to how we've been building right here in Seattle. And with the King County Equity Now Coalition, it represents exactly what you just described, where it's like, look, you know, based on these relationships we have already in community, maybe some of us grew up together, we knew each other, whatever, it's our network. But we're also so many of us are doing so much work on the ground with regard to equity in different sectors. So we all just got together to say, yeah, we need to all come together and say, look, here are some demands. Here's what we need. We know what the low-hanging fruit is. Let's get that low-hanging fruit. Let's begin to climb that tree and get, you know, fruit that's closer and closer to the top. But I love hearing, you know, your approach because that was actually my next question was about the strength of your support down there in Denver. What is that like for you and how does it actually represent, you know, the community? But I think you answered it wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can say about the strength of support in Denver. I mean, right now, it's not like the majority of the members of my network are are based in Denver. Like I'm here like locally and I understand and have lived through, you know, seeing like the market boom, the tourist boom and sort of seeing the gentrification that comes with that because, you know, cannabis was in high demand. Right. But, you know, I have been working with folks all across the U.S. And, you know, I have some in Canada and Latin America and the Caribbean, but I'm also trying to be very strategic in where I'm spending my attention in, like, the communities that I'm trying to support. So one of the things that I am working towards doing is having up to five organizations that, and in most cases, it'll be a nonprofit organization or foundation, but organizations that support 
that are, you know, combating inequities or that support social justice advocacy or entrepreneurship and financial literacy for, you know, BIPOC and other marginalized groups. So it doesn't have to be here in Denver. You know, as you were mentioning the importance of having that network and having all of these folks that, you know, are tackling equity from different areas and sort of coming together to, you know, to form King County Equity Now. Uh, it's funny because I got introduced to your organization through an entirely different contact. You know, it was somebody that I I had done some equity work with at a niche sport. You know, I used to work in Ultimate Frisbee. And when I worked at the national governing body, we spent five years focusing on how to increase the sports visibility. And a huge part of that was changing our structure and making sure that all of our decisions were being made through equitable and inclusive lenses. So, you know, I had, before I even got into cannabis, I was lucky to do some work that was all about trying to figure out how we can make, you know, an entirely disparate world accessible. And now I'm starting to see that come full circle. And I'm actually looking for new communities and new folks who may not even be in cannabis, but are also like-minded the way that, you know, your organization came to be. Do that exact same thing because you need you need those kindred spirits and that fire to make change. Yeah. You know, and to be honest, Ernest, that's really the premise of Equity Rising, right? It's like not only do we get to uplift the work happening globally in terms of equity in pretty much all sectors that need it, but also because what we're doing is now I know Ernest Tony down there in Denver, and I know exactly what you're working on. You know me up here in Seattle, Washington, Trey Holiday, right? And you know what I'm working on now. And the connectivity about this equity work globally is what is so exciting to me because I think so often so much work that is revolved around social justice, balancing the scales, equity, advocacy, you know, activism, all of these kind of things. A lot of that stuff is like, oh, it's done over here in this community or over here in this small pocket or, you know, oh, they got a great group down there in California and oh, over here. But when you understand the power of the collectivism of all of that energy, of all of that work, what you just said, kindred spirits, right? Really coming from a perspective that is for so many of us, I'm sure it was so personalized at some point in our lives that now I don't care what I do, I will always work in this kind of equity work, right? Because I understand that we need so much in order to balance the scales. So I will have to talk more about how we can make sure that folks up here in Seattle are connected to BIPOC CAN, because I think that what you're doing is brilliant work and is definitely needed up here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we as King County Equity now, cannabis is another sector and we have a whole group that's working on cannabis equity up here. But I think it feels very bleak for me when I see these reports when I understand a lot of the work that they are pulling together is that we have a lot to learn up here in terms of balancing the scales. And so anything that we can glean from all of your work, I'm sure it will be so beneficial to us up here, man. Well, likewise, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been on your website in the past couple of weeks. And uh, I actually have some folks I need to connect you to. I was talking to some people yesterday and I was like, okay, well, y'all need to you need to talk to King County Equity now because, you know, you're aligned in a lot of different ways. So, you know, hopefully, you know, when I feel comfortable with getting back on a plane, I can make it up there and, you know, we can hang out <laughs> and support yeah, each other absolutely. that way too. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Absolutely. You know, the great thing, too, I was going to share this with my brother. My brother is visiting me from Denver. He's obviously originally from here, but he and his girl live down there and have been for the last couple of years. And so I was telling him, I was like, I'm going to speak to somebody from down there. I'm going to learn a little bit more about because he's always like, just come and visit. So, you know, if I ever get down there, Ernest, I'll make sure I touch base with you for sure. (laughs) We'll have to make it official. But before we get out of here, I really want to give you some space. If there's anything we haven't covered, this has been such a great discussion. And I really appreciate hearing more about, you know, what you're really tackling down there. Again, so in alignment with what we have going up here, but anything we haven't shared. And also, how can folks support BIPOC Can? How can they be connected? Let's make sure they get that info too. Yeah, you know, I'm sure we could talk more and probably talk about this all day. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like, you know, we we had a really substantive conversation. So, you know, I, I don't really think there's anything extra that I want to add at the moment about what we, we spoke on. I, of course, do want to stay in touch because... I'm only going to continue to have, you know, folks that I can, you know, connect you and, you know, your community and your network to who are in the Pacific Northwest, who I think could be good allies and partners or supporters for you. I know that we're going to, you know, continue to stay in touch because there's some things that I'd like to do to promote your work as well. But in terms of folks who are interested in learning more about BIPOC and also interested in supporting it, Yes, you can, again, visit the website. It's uh, B-I-P-O-C-A-N-N.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, just Ernest L. Tony. And it might take uh, a moment if you connect with me on LinkedIn for me to reply, but I, I will get back to you for sure. I am looking for, you know, individuals who are interested in joining this network. You know, obviously, like, with me getting it off the ground, just like, you know, you also trying to get your operation off the ground, you know how important it is to have those uh, folks who can, you know, provide like a little bit of resources to help you. So, you know, appreciate any type of support that I can get. Uh, Likewise, uh, if there are any businesses or any folks who have some, you know, skill sets that you think could be complementary to this network, you know, if there are businesses in your network that you know that would like to be more connected to the cannabis industry, uh, let's Let's just have a conversation. Feel free to refer on my way. Absolutely. I was already thinking about that because there's a growing Black Farmers Collective up here that's focusing on cannabis. We got the Bud Bros. They are uh, a Black cannabis growers that are kind of collectivizing. Aaron Bossett has a whole, there's a whole network. So I was already thinking like, wow, I mean, as soon as you said that it wasn't just Denver, I was like, oh, snaps. Like, that's amazing because I think that there's a lot of people up here who would like to understand how to enter the industry right here in Seattle. And it has been a tough call. Uh, one of the things I didn't say earlier was that, and, and I don't know if this is something you guys have been dealing with in Denver, but up here, I think the industry has been suffering from folks who have the resources, apparently a lot of white men who have those financial resources to buy up the licenses. It was one thing I wanted to ask you about, but are you guys experiencing any of that kind of disparity down there where folks who have those resources are just buying up the license? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you, you're going to have a story like that in every uh, market where there have been uh, social equity uh, licenses that have been dedicated, and in most cases, just just so like the audience understands, so social equity, you might have a state that says, okay, we're willing to give out forty dispensary licenses. It's sort of like a lottery system; you have to apply and you know so forth. And then they'll have a social equity program provision that says, okay, of those 40 licenses, maybe we're going to give five of them 
to folks who qualify as a social equity applicant. So that might uh, have something to do with you know folks that have lived in a community that was disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs during a certain time frame. It might have to do with socioeconomic status of those folks, or it might have to do with like their racial and ethnic uh, background. Okay, so you know if you're somebody that is like, hey, I want to apply for one of these licenses, and you're lucky enough to be selected, and then you. You're like, okay, cool. Now what? All right. Well, I don't have generational wealth. I don't have, you know, quarter million, $300,000 to like get this thing off the ground. It's very easy for somebody that has those resources to sort of be predatory in some ways and try to figure out how, you know, outright, I don't know if they're outright buying it or if they're trying to uh, take over a large percentage of ownership in that state, in which case, you know, it helps the, uh, the applicant because they're able to, you know, benefit off this dream and, you know, benefit off of their dream. But at the same time, it's resources aren't necessarily going to the communities for who it was intended. So that's why there's been a lot of criticism about social equity uh, programs. I can't tell you, you know, the specifics about like what has happened here in Denver, but I am lucky enough to be working with a, a guy named Joey Pena, who is the city and county's cannabis process navigator. Uh, Joey and I actually used to work together at Marijuana Business Daily, and he was an editor and a journalist for several years. So we have a good relationship, and he's somebody that I might be able to connect on or connect with to learn more about exactly what's playing out here locally. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a real challenge in a lot of markets, and it's why it's important to be raising you know conversations about equity right now because you got you know like eight states that have medical or adult use uh, measures on their ballots. During the election cycle, you know, we're approaching federal legalization at some point. And when that happens, then you realize, okay, cannabis can now be provided as a, a medical treatment or as, you know, for recreational or adult use in your state. We're going to continue to have these same uh, questions and criticisms about how licenses are getting doled out, uh, who has access to them, who's profiting off of it. So, you know, that's why uh, even like right now, Back in my home state of Virginia, I'm already having conversations with, you know, folks in my community, you know, some lobbyists and legislators and trying to put pressure, you know, trying to do my best to educate people from the communities where I have strong ties, you know, building or with the HBCU network, because it's just a matter of time. I mean, that state just decriminalized early this summer, just opened up their medical market. And, you know, I think once you get farther in the South, especially, you're going to start to see these types of uh, questions become more mainstream. So the more pressure you can do now to help get it right, I think is going to make it easier and better and hopefully more fair and just for folks in the future. Absolutely. Well, you know what? What a way to end it, Ernest. Let me tell you, I'm glad I threw that question in there at the end because I think that when you don't work in a particular industry, you don't understand the roadblocks, right? You don't even understand all the time some of the subtle nuances that then create avalanches, right? Later down the line, you're like, oh man, it's because of that one thing that all the way over here, now this big thing can't happen. And so thank you for providing some clarity on that from your perspective. Uh, thank you again for joining us here on Equity Rising today. It's been a great conversation with you. I'm really excited to learn more and to connect more in the future. I think we have some amazing folks up here that definitely need BIPOC can services. So we'll make sure we stay connected. All right. Right on. Thank you so much, Ernest. Thanks for listening to Equity Rising. Stay tuned for a new episode next Thursday. 
You can help us get these ideas out there by subscribing to the podcast. And if you use Apple Podcasts, rating and reviewing us. And you can follow our host, Trey Holiday on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From our community to yours, take care 